we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. Thought, reason, knowledge and experience will not bring about a radical revolution in the psyche. What will? Hello and welcome to episode 122 of Urgency of Change. Season 3 of the Krishnamurti podcast continues with the format of extracts carefully chosen from the philosopher's talks. Each weekly episode focuses on a theme explored by Krishnamurti and the aim is to represent his different approaches to these universal topics. This week's theme is the psyche. Upcoming themes are measurement, attention and inattention, and accumulation. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust based at Brockwood Park in Hampshire, UK. Brockwood is also home to Brockwood Park School, an international boarding school offering a personalised, holistic education for about 70 students. It is deeply inspired by Krishnamurti's teaching, which encourages academic excellence, self-understanding, creativity and integrity. Please visit brockwood.org.uk for more information. You can also find our daily quotes and videos on Instagram and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, which helps its visibility. This week's episode on the psyche has four sections. The first extract is from Krishnamurti's second talk in Ojai in 1976, titled The psyche is put together by thought. One wants to find out a way of living in which there is no conflict, in which thought, which is the movement in time, as measure, which creates division, and whether thought can realise its own limitation and function where it is absolutely necessary and not enter into the psychological field at all. Are getting all this? No, 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 please, this is... You understand, thought has created the psyche. 
Hmm? Right? Do you understand? Thought has built the psyche, the psychological states, which is me, my ego, my all the rest of it. And thought is fragmentary. Therefore, what it has created, the me, is fragmentary. And then thought says, I must integrate with the whole, which is an impossibility. So that's the thing. And our consciousness is filled with the things of thought. Therefore, our consciousness is fragmentary. So how is there a consciousness which is not fragmentary? Do you understand my question? And can thought find it? You you you're getting it now? Good. But you it takes a long time, doesn't it? So can thought realise itself that it is a fragment and whatever movement it makes must be fragment, fragmentary, and is there an action which is not fragmentary and which can only take place when the observer is the observed, and watching that that which is undergoes radical change. Now we are trying the next point is is there a consciousness which is not put together by thought? You understand? First, we have divided the universe as the me and the you, we and they, good and bad and evil and all the rest of it. We have divided it, which is thought has divided it. And then thought says to itself, Is there a consciousness which is not? Put together by me. Right? Now, how are you, a human being, going to find out if there is a consciousness which is not put together by thought? You understand? Man has tried this for millennia, you understand? It isn't just now we are trying it. 
He has said there must be another consciousness, which is not this kind of consciousness. And so he says, I must control thought. You follow? I must, there must be a system by which thought can be controlled. Right? And then, when thought is controlled, held, then perhaps the, I will know what the other is. You, and this is the whole basis of meditation, whether Zen or the other forms of meditation. Control thought. And I have never said, who is the controller? You, the controller is still the thought. I wonder if you see all this. So, to find out, to come upon that which is not put together by thought, we not only have to understand the place of thought as knowledge, right, and where thought has no place whatsoever, not suppressing it, Thought has a place as knowledge in our daily superficial activities. When you drive a car, you must have, you must know how to drive a car. You must know if you go and work in a factory, so on, how to write. You know where knowledge is necessary, and. It is only possible <coughs> to give knowledge its right place when you have understood the whole nature of thinking. That is, psyche, the entity as the me, has been put together by thought. Me, my virtue, my temperament, my desires, my ambitions, my peculiar idiosyncrasies, my my experience as opposed to your experience. Those are all the result of thought. Right? And thought has its right place. Otherwise you couldn't speak, you wouldn't be able to understand the English language. Right? Is this clear? That thought as knowledge has its right place. But it has no place in the psyche, which means can the mind, can this whole structure 
of the psyche cease to be. You understand? Mm. Then only you'll be able to. There is a totally different kind of consciousness, which you will never find through meditation. You understand? Though even though you call it transcendental and all that nonsense, it's a really that word transcendental. You know, it's a good word spoiled. By cheap meditation. <coughs> you understand? Therefore, there is time in the right place as movement of thought, measurement. In the technological field you must measure, otherwise there is no technological activity at all. And all the things that thought has created is reality. Right? All the things that thought has put together is a, is reality. But thought has not put together the mountain or the tree. But that is also a reality. Right? Please follow this carefully. All the gods, all the rituals, all the mischief that is being made in the world by thought is a reality. War is a reality. Killing people is a reality. The violence, the brutality, the callousness, the destruction is a reality made by thought, put together by thought. And Nature is not reality, is, is, a rea- is actuality, but not put together by thought. Wait, go slowly, I'll show you something else. Right? All the things that thought has put together, including wars, violence, all that is a reality. The mountains, the trees, the rivers, the beauty of the sky is, is a reality, but it's not put together by thought. Belief is a reality, put together by thought, but it's neurotic. You follow? The neuroticism is a reality. And truth is not reality. I wonder if you get this. Hmm? 
Thought can never touch truth. Right? Then what is the relationship between truth and reality? Are you interested in all this? I don't know. You understand? <clears throat> we have examined the nature of thought. We said thought is material process, in matter, because it is stored up in the brain, part of the cell, which is matter. So thought is a material process in time, a movement. And whatever that movement creates is reality. Both the neurotic as well as the so called fragmentary, the realities. The actual is a reality, like the microphone. But, and also, nature is a reality. So, what is truth? Can thought, which is fragmentary, which is caught up in time, mischievous, violent, all that, what? Can that thought find truth? Truth being the whole. That which is sacred, holy. And if it cannot find it, then what place or what is the relationship of thought, of reality, to that which is absolute? You understand? You know, all this demands meditation. This real meditation, you understand? Not the things imported into this country by the gurus. Whether consciousness, which is the, its content, can ever, can ever expand to include that consciousness of truth, or this consciousness as of the psyche, the me with all its content, has to end before the, before the perception of what is true. You. So I have to find, one has to find out what is the nature of the psyche, you understand? 
which is being put together by thought. What is me to which one clings so desperately? The vanity, the arrogance, the desire to achieve, to become successful, you know, be somebody. What is this nature of it? How has it come about? Because if that exists, the other cannot be. You understand? That if I am egotistic, in its total sense, not in a part, fragmentary sense, totally, because I'm, one is totally self-centred. You may pretend. But as long as that psychic centre exists, truth cannot possibly be. Because truth is the whole, and so on, so on. So how is the mind, the mind being, all the senses, the emotions, the memories, the prejudices, the principles, the ideals, memories, experience, the totality of that, which is the psyche, which is the me, how is that to end and yet behave in a world which is now? You understand? Is that possible? To find that out, I must go, one must go very deeply into the question of fear, <laughs> very complex problem of pleasure, because pleasure is very complex, fear is fairly simple. Pleasure is what this one demands. And the question of sorrow, whether sorrow can ever end. Man has lived with sorrow upon millennia upon millennia. He hasn't been able to end it. And one must also go into the question of what is death? Because all the, and love, all that is the matrix of the me. You know? So this is a very, very serious affair. It is not just a thing to be played with. One must give one's whole life to understand this, to live in this world completely, sanely, 
without the psyche. You understand? Not escape, not go off into some monastery, commune, or this or the other, but to live here, in this mad, insane, murderous world, where there is so much corruption, where politics are divorced from ethics, and therefore there is corruption. To live in this world, sanely, without the psyche, the me. You understand? It's a tremendous question. That requires a mind that is capable, hmm, can think meticulously, correctly, objectively, having all your senses fully awakened, not drugged by alcohol, speed and all the rest of it. You understand what all this means? You must have a very healthy mind. And when it is drugged, you you haven't got a healthy mind. Smoking, drinking, your sorrow, all this destroys the mind, dulls, makes the mind dull. The second extract is from the second talk in San Francisco, 1983, titled Time and the Psyche. We live by time. We get up in the morning, go, go to the office, come back home, and this whole process of time is involved. There is physical time, sun rises, sun sets, and we must find out for ourselves not to be told, not to be suggested, discover for oneself the nature of time in the psychological realm. Time has built up the egotistic, the personal, the whole psychological world. We think time is necessary in that area, and we are questioning whether the psyche, the me, the ego, the self, the centre from which all action takes place, whether that, whether it is caught in illusion and therefore pursues the idea of time, whether the psyche, the you, has evolution at all, or there is no future 
for the psyche, for the me. The future is the movement of the past, modified by the present, and continues as the future. So, the past is maintained, however modified. The past is the accumulated knowledge, experience. The past is the observer. I hope all this is clear. The past is the knowledge that we have accumulated, whether it be of yesterday or thousand upon thousands of yesterdays. That's the past. That past meets the present. The present environment, society, and so on. And the past gets modified, slightly changed, but the past remains as the past and continues as the future. This whole cycle is called time. The accumulation of knowledge in the physical world or in the scientific world needs time. That is acquiring more and more knowledge, however limited that knowledge is. But we are asking, is time necessary at all? Or time is a factor in the psychological world and the evolution of the psyche, that is the me, the ego, the self, has a future. I hope, one hopes this is all clear. May we go on if it's clear? Knowledge, which is the accumulation of experience, which is tradition, which is the past, is in fact time. Now, we are, we are questioning whether fear, which is part of time, whether fear has a process of evolution, gradual growth, ending, or future has no time at all. That is, the ending of fear instantly, not gradually. Are we together in all this? Somewhat together? Because our concern is 
where the fear can end, ever. Or, it is the lot of man, as sorrow, to have fear till the end of his days. We tolerate it. We accept it as a part of life. And we try to escape from fear. Fear being something that is painful, dangerous, to be avoided. Fear of some incident of the past, continued as memory, and that memory breeding fear. We all know what fear is. Not a particular form of fear, fear of darkness, fear of something or other, but we are concerned with the root of fear. What is the cause of fear? And in asking that question, to discover for oneself the root of it, not merely the clipping off the branches of fear, the various expressions of fear. If you want to cut down a tree, you don't trim the branches, you cut the the very root of the tree. So we are asking, what is the root of fear? And whether that is possible in the discovering of it, whether it can end totally, completely, not partially, not it ends sometimes and begins again. Which means the brain, the speaker is not a specialist in brain, but he has observed very carefully, not only in himself, but in the activities of humankind. This fear exists among the animals, and that fear is rewarded or punished. So we are, we depend on reward and punishment. But in the understanding of fear, one must go into very, very deeply. That is, we inquire into time, which I think is fairly clear, and also, is thought the cause of fear? Thought is time. They are not 
two separate activities. Thought has created fear. That is, psychologically, one remembers some incidents that cause fear, and that incident is recorded in the brain, and the brain then is afraid of that incident happening again. So thought is responsible for fear, as time is. This is a fact. It's not an invention by the speaker, but when one observes these two elements, time and thought, bring about fear. And out of fear, we create great many illusions. The illusion of God. I hope you don't mind saying this. (laughs) The illusion that one can escape from fear by forgetting it, suppressing it, denying it, or tolerating it. Fear has done great many horrible things in life. Things that any sane man would never do. Fear of of war, being destroyed, homes, yourself, your relations, and all the rest of it. But we never inquired into the cause of wars, which we went into yesterday. Separate tribalism, and whether it is possible to live without any nationality, without any of division. We talked about it yesterday. You not, one does not know if one realizes we are in a great crisis, not only outside as war, but also crisis in our lives, crisis in our consciousness. We are trying to stop or a particular kind of war, nuclear war and all the rest of that business. And that fear that in finding security in division, That fear, no, the desire to find security in division, which creates fear, then that fear brings about wars. I hope we are all following all this. Please, we are thinking together. 
We are walking down a lane in a wood, sitting down on the ground, looking at all the magnificent trees, and talking about serious matter, like two friends who are concerned with the world and with themselves. And in their conversation, this question of fear arises. They're asking themselves whether this fear can ever end completely. And one of the friends says, it can, it is possible. So one must understand, not intellectually, superficially, but very deeply that time and thought are involved in the causation of fear. Now, the friend says, I, I can't stop, stop time or thought. It's impossible to stop it. But the other friend says, it's not a question of stopping it. It's not try to exercise will in order to stop it, but to understand where time and thought are necessary and where they are not. So the friend says, time and thought are necessary in the physical world, learning a language and learning a skill and so on. To put together a computer requires time and thought and knowledge. There it is necessary, the friend says. And the other says, yes, I accept that. That's natural. It's inevitable. It's necessary. But In the psychological world, my brain has been conditioned through time, through thought. So to understand the nature of fear, one must understand why the brain, I hope you are following all this, we are two friends talking together. My brain is is conditioned by knowledge, which is experience, and that experience and knowledge has been the process of evolution, both outwardly and, I thought, inwardly. But you are suggesting that what we consider necessary psychologically, is an illusion, not a fact. So they, they discuss the matter, because they have plenty of time, it's a lovely morning, the birds are singing, and there the shadows, numberless, of the trees on the ground, 
It's a pleasant, lovely morning. And the subject is not morbid, but they have to find out. And it's important to find out. So, one of the friends says, if one can understand the necessity of time and thought, where it is, it should be, but has it any place in the area of the psyche? That is, the psyche is put together by thought, and thought says, I will become better. The better is the movement of time. It's better is measurement. The more is measurement, comparison. Now, can one live without comparison whatsoever? Of course, you have to compare between two cars. to houses, to gardens, to machines, and so on. But why should we live with always comparing inwardly? Is it possible, he asks his friend, to live without comparison whatsoever? That is, <coughs> never compare, never try to become something more. Because the self, however evolved, however becomes better, will, will, will still be the self, still be very, very refined selfishness. The third extract is from Krishnamurti's fifth talk in New York, 1966, titled What Will Bring About a Revolution in the Psyche? Now, can experience of any kind bring about a radical change in the psyche, in consciousness? Because that is the issue, that is the problem. Our consciousness is the result of the past. We are the past. And a mind functioning within this field of the past cannot at any time resolve any problem. So one must have a totally new mind. A revolution must take place in the psyche. And can this revolution come about through 
experience. You Because that's what we are waiting, that's what we want. We are looking for an experience that will transform us. But that's why we go to church or take drugs or sit in meditation, because our craving, longing, intensity is to bring about a change within ourselves. We see the necessity of it and we look to some outside authority, to some authority or to our own experience. So is there any outside authority outside agency as God, as an idea, a belief? Can any outside agency bring about this transformation? That's one issue. Second, can any experience through any means bring about this total revolution in the psyche? So, will authority as an idea, as grace, as God and so on, will that bring about change? Will authority transform the human mind? I think this is very important to understand. Because to us authority is very important. Though one may revolt against authority, we set up our own authority. and we conform to that authority. Like long hair and so on, so on, so on. So there is the authority of law, which one obviously must accept, then there is the psychological authority. The authority of one who knows. As the priest. And nobody bothers about the priest nowadays. At least the so called intellectual, fairly 
clear-thinking people don't care about the priest, the church, and all their inventions. But they have their own authority, which is the authority of the intellect, reason, or knowledge. And they follow that authority. And a man afraid, uncertain, not clear in in his activities, in his life, he wants some authority to tell him what to do. The authority of the analyst, the book, or the latest fad. So can the mind be free from authority? Which means free from fear. So that it is no longer capable of following. And therefore, putting an end to imitation, which becomes mechanical. After all, virtue, ethics, is not a repetition of what is good. The moment it becomes mechanical, it ceases to be virtue. Virtue is something that must be from moment to moment. Like humility. You cannot cultivate humility. And a mind that is, has no humility is incapable of learning. So, virtue has no authority. The social morality is no morality at all, it's immoral. Because it admits competition, greed, ambition. And therefore, it's in societies encouraging immorality. But virtue is something that transcends memory. But yet, without virtue, 
There is no order. And order is not according to a pattern, according to a formula. And the mind that follows a formula through disciplining itself to achieve virtue creates for itself the problems of immorality. So, authority, whether it is an external authority which, which, which the mind objectifies apart from the law as God, as moral, and so on, that authority becomes destructive when the mind is seeking or understanding what is real virtue. And we have our own authority as experience, as knowledge, which we are trying to follow. And so there is this constant repetition, imitation, which we all know. So authority, we are talking of psychological authority, not the authority of law, the policeman who keeps order, but the psychological authority which each one has becomes destructive of virtue, because virtue is something that is living, moving. As you cannot possibly cultivate humility, as you cannot possibly cultivate love, virtue cannot be cultivated. And there is great beauty in that. Therefore virtue is non-mechanical, and without virtue there is no foundation for clear thinking. You know that it brings in a problem of discipline. For most of us discipline is suppression, imitation, adjust conformity. 
and therefore there is a conflict all the time. But there is a discipline which is not suppression, which is not control, which is not adjustment. That discipline comes when to see clearly becomes imperative. Look, we are confused, and out of that confusion we act, which only increases more confusion. But realizing that we are confused, To, to not to act demands great discipline in itself. Look, sir, to see a flower demands a great deal of attention. If you really want to look at a flower, at a tree, or at your neighbour, or your wife, or your husband, you have to look. And you cannot look if thought interferes with that look. And you realise that. One sees that fact. The very observation of that fact is demands discipline. There is no imposition of a mind that says, I must be orderly, disciplined to look. And there is the authority, psychological authority that demands, the psyche that demands authority to. to guide itself to follow, to do the right thing. Such an authority ends all virtue, and without virtue you cannot possibly think clearly, live a life of tremendous sensitivity and activity. And, as we said, we look to experience as a means to bring about this revolution in the psyche. Can any experience bring about a change in consciousness? You understand my question? First of all, why do we need experience? For the 
We demand it because our life is empty. We've had sex, we've been to churches, we've read, we've done hundreds of little things. And we want some supreme experience that will clear away all this mess. So we look to an experience. Now, what do we mean by an experience? And why do we demand it? Please, this is a very serious question. Do go into it with me. Find out for yourselves, if I may suggest, why you want experiences. Not only the experiences that the LSD gives, but also other forms of experiences. And obviously these experiences must be pleasant, must be pleasurable, enjoyable. Otherwise you don't want such a sorrowful experiences. Why? And who is it that is experiencing? And when you are experiencing, actual experiencing, in a state of experience, is there an experiencer who says, I am enjoying it? You, you've, oh, all experiences are always in the past, never at the moment. And any experience that one has is recognizable. Otherwise, it's not an experience. And if you recognize it, it's already known. Otherwise you can't recognize it. I don't know if you are following all this. So a mind that demands experience as a means <coughs> to bring about a radical revolution in the psyche is merely a continuity of what has been, and therefore it is nothing new in experience. And we need experience for most people to keep them awake, otherwise you go to sleep. If there was no challenge, if there was no response, if there was no pleasure and pain, we would just become vegetables, cow-like. So experiences keep us awake 
through pain, through suffering, through every form of discontent. <coughs> On one side it acts as a stimulant and experience prevents the mind <coughs> from clarity, from a revolution. Please follow me a little bit. So is it possible to keep totally awake to be highly active and intelligent, sensitive, and because it is sensitive, tremendously active, it doesn't need experience. It is only a dull mind, an insensitive mind that is demanding experience. Hoping through experience it will reach greater and greater and greater experiences of enlightenment of, and so on. So the problem is this, our issue is this. Can a mind, which is the result of many centuries, thousands and upon thousand years, can that mind, which has functioned always within the field of the known, And therefore, within that field of the known there is nothing new. All the gods it has invented are from the past, from the known. And can a mind by thought, by intelligence, by reason, bring about this transformation. You understand my... am I making myself clear? We need tremendous psychological change, not a new... Uh, neurotic change. And reason, thought cannot do it. So obvious. We don't have to go into that. Then what will? If experience will not, nor authority will not, then what will?
neither knowledge nor reason nor all the cunning activities of the intellect will bring about this radical revolution in the psyche. We have tried everything. So one asks oneself, what will? This is a fundamental question, not a question that can be answered by another, but in examining the question, you understand, in examining the question, not in trying to find an answer to the question, we will find the answer. And therefore, you, to put that question, you must be tremendously earnest. Because if you put that question with a motive, because you want certain results and all the rest of it, it is then the motive dictates the answer. Therefore, you must, one must put that question without motive. without any profit. And that's the extraordinarily difficult thing to do, because all our activities, all our demands have motives, personal or that personal motive identified with a greater motive, but is still a motive. So what will bring about if thought, reason, knowledge, experience will not bring about this radical revolution in the psyche, and it is only that revolution that will solve all our problems. The final extract in this episode is from the fifth talk in Madras, 1981, titled It is not your psyche, it is the human psyche. So you are watching yourself, which is watching the human consciousness, watching the human psyche. It's not your psyche, because wherever you go in the world, doesn't matter where human beings are suffering, right? Human beings have fear, human beings are pursuing pleasure, human beings are afraid of death, human beings have no love, right? So it's a common factor. Your psyche is the common factor. 
So you are the whole of humanity. You understand, sir? I know you. This is something probably new to you. Therefore, you you're rebelling and resisting it. But if you just listen to it, listen to it. You see, that's a fact for yourself. You may have a different name, different color, different stature, different manners, but deep down, psychologically, you're the, like the rest of mankind. Mankind that's lonely. Mankind that is frightened. Mankind that is longing to escape from itself and burdened with new, with sorrow of thousand years. You are that. So you are the representative. You are the rest of man, mankind. You are mankind. So when we investigate, we are investigating not. You are particular little me, which is part also, but investigate into the whole psyche of man. Therefore, there is nothing selfish. There is nothing to be saved. This is not a religion. We are not talking about a religion of salvation. We are talking about. The ending of fear. Fear is the result of thought. Right? Fear is the result of time. Fear of the past, fear of the future. Actual fear has no time. Only when thought says, I am afraid. I wonder if you understand this. When the moment, the moment of fear, thought is absent, right? It's only a sensory responses, right? Centered in the brain, and thought says, "I am afraid." I don't do this. You understand this? I'm afraid of losing my job. I'm afraid of losing my wife. I'm jealous because my wife, etc., etc. All that is the movement of thought. As pleasure is the movement of thought, sexual pleasure, the picture, the image, all that, and also the various types of pleasure, pleasure of having more money, pleasure of power. Right, pleasure of possession, pleasure in attachment, with a wife to a child, to a building, to an idea, and that attachment is corruption. Yes, sir. Attachment is corruption. Obvious. If you are attached to your wife, you are attached because for various reasons. Very simple. Physical pleasure, psychological pleasure, and the comfort you derive, or whatever it is, you are attached. Without her, you feel lost, lonely, 
Therefore, you are attached. So, from that attachment arises jealousy, anxiety, fear of losing and so on. So, where there is attachment of any kind, there must be corruption. Right? Sir, do you see it? The truth of it? Do you see the fact of it? Then end it. But if we say, I'll think about it, I will learn about it, why should I not be attached? No longer back and forth, then you are back into the old system, right? Where time binds you. I wonder if you understand this. We have our brains have become time slavery slaves to time. But if if you see that you you can end time, which is ending thought. But before we go into much deeper things, this is the this you must clear. A brave, a psyche that is not afraid, that has no fear, that isn't everlastingly pursuing pleasure in different forms, possession, power, siddhis, becoming an ascetic, controlling oneself, all the various forms of pleasure. To look at it, to see what it is. It's not a pleasure when you see a sunset, beauty. But it becomes pleasure when thought says, I must have it again, I must go there again. You understand all this? So see it and do it instantly. 